The information on this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All information contained on or related to this podcast is for general information purposes only. On this episode, we will be talking with Dr. Silverberg. He is a Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada certified gastroenterologist taking care of patients with IBD and with other digestive disorders for more than 20 years. He is a global expert in his field, having been elected to the prestigious International Organization for the Study of Inflammatory Bowel Disease in 2011. He has been recognized with numerous awards, visiting professorships, and invited talks around the world, having provided more than 150 lectures internationally in his career. He has been an author of over 170 original published research articles with a career age index over 70. He is currently a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and a gastroenterologist at Mount Sinai Hospital and University Health Network. Dr. Silverberg is also actively engaged in educating healthcare professionals on IBD through his role as founder of the Advanced IBD Fellowship Program at Mount Sinai, training more than 20 gastroenterologists in the care of IBD from countries such as Australia, Ireland, England, Israel, Korea, Chile, and Saudi Arabia. He is also co-director of both the Canadian GI Fellows Program in IBD and the Great Lakes IBD Forum. And most importantly, he's my gastroenterologist. Hello everyone, I'm Chantal Wicks and this is Guts and Glory. Okay, everyone, we are back, and I am so excited because my gastroenterologist, Dr. Silverberg, is here today to talk to us about a lot of really great things that he's been doing. Dr. Silverberg, thanks for joining us. It's great to be on, here. On your Saturday, I realize you're a very busy man, clearly. Um, so let's start. So um, gaps in the standard care of IBD, where, where do you think those are from a doctor's perspective? Right. So I've, I've been working at Mount Sinai for almost 20 years now, taking care of IBD patients. And over the years, I've sort of, you get a lot of feedback from people. People complain. Or, that would be me. I complain. <laughs> <and> complain. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's part of Canadian healthcare that there's, there's always um, some limitations on access. And, and I think that's for sure one of the big things that I hear uh, people are sick or they're having a flare and they've been your patient for a long time and they call and they say, I need an appointment or I need to be seen. And it's a few weeks yeah, away. You, you don't have something urgently and you don't have a place where uh, the patient can be seen. You don't have a nurse necessarily that can sort of at least do an initial screening assessment. So it's often we'll do our best to squeeze you in as soon as we can or go to the emergency department or to your family doctor, which is not An emergency is not where we really like to right, go. exactly. You're there for 10 hours and they often don't know much about your history, so it's not ideal. Right. So because of that, you're, you're being a hero in the GTA community, in the IBD community, and you are opening up your own clinic um, that has a very holistic approach to IBD. So tell us about this amazing clinic, which I will be going to, by the way. <laughs> so, so over these years of hearing about these types of issues, and we'll talk more about the other things that I, I hear about from patients, uh, it's hard to implement some of these things in a hospital environment. Hospitals Is this because are, of like funding as well? And well, just... ho hospitals aren't funded to 
do outpatient care. You know, they're they're funded to take care, care of yeah, yeah. emergency department, heart attacks and strokes and broken bones and and operations. Not and the long term, right? They're not they're not really well set up for chronic disease and long term care and outpatient care. So in hearing these things, I thought, you know, what's missing in IBD is, is an outpatient center that's going to provide in a more flexible way some of these uh, needs and gaps, fill the gaps that people have to, to do better job at taking care of people with chronic disease. So what's going to be at this center that you're going to have? By the way, the center is called um, the Toronto... Toronto Immune and Digestive Health Institute. So yes. it's, it's a broad and it's a little bit of a long name. <laughs> Tidy for short is what okay, we've we'll given the tidy. name. Okay. Uh, so, I like that um, although, though. Tidy's good. You know, my, my daughter called it Tidy, which maybe isn't, <laughs> isn't what I was going for. But uh, So uh, Tidy is the short form. Okay. And um, it's uh, the idea of it is to provide, yeah, like you said, a holistic approach to IBD. So I, IBD requires a lot of, of approaches and, and only a small segment of it is the prescription for a medication. And, and that we do well in our existing system. We, if we're the patient's in front of us and they need a medication, Here we'll give is. them a prescription. Right. And, but there's so many more elements to it from our mental. Infusions. Yeah, I mean, it's that's part of the medical approach that we, that's a gap in, in standard medical care that for whatever reason falls through the cracks is getting IV fluids uh, for hydration perhaps, right. or IV iron is a problem. Even getting help with an injection, methotrexate like, is injected and or, often people or Humira, have to- Or even B12 Humira B12, injections. Yeah, yeah. people have to go to their GP to or their B12, nurse. It's yeah. such a pain, right? To make an appointment with your family doctor. Um, or things like, um, you know, if people have a need for counseling, they, they talk about their, they, they, there's a lot of stress involved. As so you you're going to have someone to help with mental health at this clinic as well. Like. Yeah. So we're going to have as part of our programs, psychologists that we work with that are, that I know that I've sort of worked with over the years that I think are focused on patients with gastrointestinal problems, IBD particularly. Or chronic pain. So they under, yeah, chronic pain, huge area that's just not dealt with well. And then, so there's pain, there's mental health, and then there's the whole nutrition and dietitian approach, which really is completely under sort of serviced and under underperforming. Which is a little the, bit shocking considering this is a, a it's a gastro disease. Yeah, this it's, is like it's, you think uh, food would be the first. Right. So traditionally we always you know doctors get almost no nutrition education in medical school, maybe a one or two hour lecture in four years, at least when I was there. And I don't think it's too different even now. <laughs> um, but and for years doctors were sort of taught you know, you know diets aren't important in IBD. They're not going to affect right. your outcomes. And there's no, don't worry about what you eat. You can eat anything you want. And I think patients never really accepted that and good for them. It's so because, hard to believe that yeah, I'm having issues with my right. stomach and my intestines and you're telling me that what I eat doesn't Absolutely. really matter. Like So that's changing. And it's yeah. changing, I think, because the science is changing. The research on how diets could affect uh, health and, and disease is now becoming more mainstream. And we're understanding that that connection between diet and the bacteria and the organisms the that microbiome. live in the gut, the yeah. microbiome, there's now a biology behind that, that as a doctor, as a scientist, we can sort of understand and wrap our head around, okay, there's some data that shows that when you eat this, that this changes in the gut and that can affect immune responses. So, right. I think too, with nutritionists and dietitians, like 
someone with IBD, there's no cookie cutter diet. I don't think that's going to fit one. Exactly. But depending on where you are in your disease, if you know, if you're in a flare, or if you're having severe malnourishment issues because of the part of your intestine that's swollen or inflamed and it's not absorbing anything, I think speaking to somebody who profession professionally who knows about nutrition, who knows about diet, to give you some tips on how what you could be eating or what you could try. To yeah. because I know when like when you're flaring and you're that ill and you're losing as much fluid as you are, you stop eating or what you are eating you don't know if it's not very nutritionist for you. And then as all of my levels drop, my B12 and my iron and everything else starts to plummet, that's not helping me get better. Like it's right. just, it's a vicious cycle that makes yeah, me feel. Said, it, it is so individual. That's what I've found interesting. Is How that do you it, tell For years people, there's like, been diets on the online that you could read about the Gottschall diet and the specific carbohydrate diet, but it's a one diet, it's one diet and, and some people will eat that diet and it'll have no impact and others actually feel worse and others feel better. I mean, do people don't even have one medication that right. works for them? It's, it's <laughs> such a heterogeneous disease. Yeah, and, like all of the yeah. patients I've met in my, my 13 years now, actually, in my 13 years of having IBD, you know, I'll have people tell me they can't eat chicken. I'll be like, that's the only thing I can eat. <laughs> like, what do you mean you can't eat chicken? Like, if I couldn't right. eat chicken, right. I would have nothing. Yeah. You know, or people say I can't have eggs. Or right. so people say, a... oh, I eat salad every day. I'm like, yeah. what? Like, Yeah, so it's, it's really complex, and there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of, I think, bad advice going out to people because it isn't just about general nutrition and what works for some people doesn't work for other people, but it's also about that unique microbiome flora that a certain individual may have that maybe needs to adapt to a different type of approach. And the science to do that isn't quite there, there yet, yet but, but it's evolving. And I think, you know, there's still some approaches we could recommend based on what we know now and having nutritionists and dietitians that are you know, sophisticated and are willing to work with the gastroenterologist on the individual approach to a patient, I think is going to have a, a significant role in the next 10 years in managing IVD. So what were some of the other things you have some of your patients saying? Like, I know that mental health, for example, is something that stress and anxiety is something that I struggle with. You, you know, deciding to change my medication and going on an infusion is something I avoided for like three years because right. <laughs> I was right. so nervous about it. And yes. But then the anxiety of, um, I want to go on a road trip and, you know, maybe I'm not feeling so well and am I, am I going to be able to make that distance or, you know, the weather is changing. How is that? extra stress on right, my system. So right. I'm assuming you hear this from other Yeah, this is such I'm a not huge, just alone. I'm not alone. It's a huge <laughs> aspect of chronic disease in general and GI and IBD diseases in specific. And, you know, the, first of all, there's a big connection, as people know, between the your gut and, the gut. and your brain. You yeah. know, you're nervous. You go to the bathroom. Absolutely. Um, your stomach hurts. You know, the butterflies in your stomach. You have people who are people stressed have. and they stop yeah. eating or you have people who are stressed and they binge eat. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the gut has its own nervous system and it is connected to the to your central nervous system. And so we just, don't, again, don't understand it very well. We're starting to get a little bit more of an understanding of it. But what patients probably say is their biggest unmet need is that they don't have anybody to talk to or ask about that right. mental health support. So many patients with IBD have anxiety and depression and stress-related symptoms and, you know, this their, their interactions with their colleagues at work, at school, with their friends, their approach? social life. You know, so how many patients with IBD, they don't want to go out, you know, they have to make yeah. an excuse why they can't be out at dinner with their family or friends. Well, I personally did not tell anybody that I had IBD for like the first four years that I had. Mm -hmm. but 
out of my own ignorance, to be honest, I wasn't actually told what my, my first gastroenterologist, which was not Dr. Silverberg, by the way, um, did not tell me that I had a chronic illness, did not tell me what was wrong with me. Um, so part of the reason why I didn't share it was because I didn't know what it was. And it was very, at the time, my biggest symptoms were bathroom related. Yeah. And we don't necessarily- It's not dinner table no. conversation. It's like, oh, right? by the way, let me tell you about today. Yeah. Um, how many times we went to the bathroom? We never, I didn't talk about that. I'm obviously have made a 180 degree turn since uh, then because now <laughs> I talk about you. everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk about poop. Talk about colons. Talk about everything. Um, but it was. It's. I could see. You know. Even as open as I am, there are situations and relationships that I have where, whether it be at work or whichever, that I I worry. How do I approach having this conversation when you know, as a teacher, when I go to a new school? It's beneficial if my classroom is close to a bathroom. I don't want to have to walk yeah. up a flight of stairs and down a hallway right. to get to a bathroom. And that means if I'm moving into this new school, I might have to shift a whole hallway of teachers who have been in a classroom for years and years and years. Right. And that gives that's anxiety. And you know, it shouldn't be because this is a issue we have. If I was, you know, um, had physical issues, somebody would easily move out of their classroom so that I, if I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs, if I was in a wheelchair, we would advocate for those people and that would be easy. But I think because on the outside, I look healthy. It's the invisible disability. Right. Uh, it's the yeah. worry of if I tell people this and if I have to inconvenience, right. that's my mind. My mind is thinking I'm inconveniencing people. How will I be perceived? Yeah. No, it's a huge problem. I mean, you, it's almost more acceptable to talk about your neurologic disability. You have MS Absolutely, or you've had I a stroke so. and you need a wheelchair and you're going to mm -hmm. have the wheelchair pass in your car and you can park close to the door. Yeah. And people will be much more accepting nowadays and understanding we have to make it disabled accessible. But for a patient with IBD that needs to get to a bathroom within a minute or two or they're going to soil themselves, you know, there's no, you don't look like someone that should have a disability. Why should you have a, a disabled pass that allows you to park near and, the near And this the has been an issue. IBD or, people have, you know, IBD warriors have had frustrations with. Right. I've seen articles where people have had, you know, a, an accessibility pass and they've been yelled at by other people yeah. in parking lots right. because it's like, why are you parking here? Yeah, and talking about that is not easy. So no. you know, next what are you going to say? I have Crohn's and I got to go to the bathroom. We like, just need to make know, sure it's, it's for not, everyone. So it's, it's not like, a sexy disease to talk no. about. And people are embarrassed um, to talk about it with their friends and family even. So it's a big issue. And that leads to stress. People internalize it. They don't. They can't talk about it the way they might talk about, you know, people go to a dinner party and talk about their heart bypass without any problem. But they probably won't talk about their colitis. Or their, you know, they're or not going to talk about the colonoscopy they just right. had. <laughs> Less likely. It's going to be something that they're going to internalize. And you know, I'm just hoping I don't have to go to the bathroom or I'm not going to eat tonight because I might have to go. Well, I know for I, me, my one of my biggest, at least I've discovered in the last 13 years, that I seem to flare when I'm under stress, whether that be mental stress or, you know, a significant change in weather or season. It's not necessarily food related, but more or less stress related. And then I, I wonder what comes first. Is it the flaring that causes more stress or did my stress cause my flaring? It gets this cyclical situation. I, I don't know. I don't know what is making yeah, things it, worse. Yeah, it probably is. This is probably goes in both directions. Right. I'm certain about that. So that's, a big a element that clinic. we don't have really a way to manage well in our system. And at our clinic, what we're hoping to have is a, an, a, an approach to that that's organized with staff 
at our expert in this area to help uh, provide some of that, those guidances to people, the advice that they need to help manage that So it'll that make part it easier for patients at your clinic to have access to these types yes, of- Yes, that, that's my goal is to figure out a way to provide it, but also to make it accessible because, you know, I can give people right now the name of a referrals, person, but, yeah. you know, firstly, they're not well integrated into our full approach to the patient. And secondly, it's, it's expensive, you know, uh, psychology care and these, some of these ancillary health programs are not covered by health insurance or most health insurance. So what I'm looking to do is use our whole clinic approach to model, you know, a way to make it either subsidized or less expensive for people that can't afford it so that we can get everybody at least some level of care that right now we can't get access to at all. So is there anything else you're going to be offering at your clinic that is you know, you're going to have people lining up. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. That's... Waiting to get in so after this it's... episode. <laughs> yeah, the kind of, uh, my thought is that this should be one-stop shopping for IBD. It's brilliant. It's like it's efficient like because when I think about a typical patient, and you probably can relate to a lot of the, these elements, you're going to one place for your, let's say, my biologic B12. infusion. You're going yeah. to your family doctor for your vaccines or your B12. You're going to somewhere your, else for my iron. You know, you're going to, to my of- office yeah. so for an appointment. And another day, you're coming for your colonoscopy on another day. And then you might go to your dietitian in another yeah. place yeah. and your psychologist. So there's just so many. It takes up a lot of your time. It's stressful. You got to go all different places. You got to make appointments. So our our idea is to make it as efficient and easy as possible to put. as much of that as we can in one place. So let's say you're coming for your Tivio, and and on on that day, you can get a B12 shot. You can see your doctor. You can, one of us will be there. You can have your appointment that day. You could have an IV iron infusion. You could meet with the dietitian while you're getting your infusion. Like we want to be able to do as much as possible while you're in that one place so that you don't have to make 10 different visits. Uh, When I see a new patient, for example, we can do their vaccine counseling, get their blood work done, um, uh, do all the initial assessments, even have their scope if we need it. we're not going to need route. to go to get blood work somewhere else. No, either. you'll get your blood drawn there. <laughs> It'll all be sent off for you. You don't have to go to the lab separately. So, I want to make it efficient because there's no reason why that can't all be done. You know, we have the people right. that could do it. It's just that we don't have the right approach to it in one center. And and I think this is what's unique about it. And I feel like people are going to really like that. We're in a very central part of the city, you know, coming downtown. I mean, obviously, we, we have a great program at Mount Sinai, but it's downtown. There's no... Uh, inexpensive parking. Parking um, is expensive. Yes, you know, it's a long way to travel for a lot of people. It's there's a lot of traffic, and and this is we're we're at the Lawrence and Allen Expressway area, so we're we're on the main transit routes, Not both for driving, free way. parking. Free parking. Uh, yeah, it's in, my, a, it's in a parking lot, so there's no you don't have to pay for. Yeah, there, it's in a shopping mall. There's a, you can get your groceries done. There's a Fortino's and a Canadian Tire there. I mean, there's lots. You, you know, you can uh, you can get a lot of stuff done. There's a a food court for your relatives that are waiting for That's you great. for a procedure. So I think it'll be a very convenient location for people, and this way we can we can really make it efficient and and take at least one element of the stress of IBD out of their right. lives. So it from a doctor's perspective, is it also helpful? that all of those things will be happening in this, like the access to the information for you, if you're looking at a patient holistically to know they're going to this, this, that they're all being seen, like this information yeah, will be shared yeah, and disseminated. Yeah, like we'll, we'll have it all as part of our program. It'll be standard program, so everybody will be under one roof, and the people that I bring in are going to be people that are sort of following the approaches that I 
you know, pr uh, approve in. of, yeah, let's yeah. say, or believe in. And yeah, it'll, it will be easier for us to have everything under one roof for sure. Are there any IVD centers like this anywhere else that, you know, yeah, it's a, looking at that obviously have right. shown success. It's a great question. And and what's interesting and was shocking to me, there's almost nothing like this anywhere in the world. So, I, you know, I have yes. a lot of colleagues everywhere. And um, there, it's been hard to find something that's like this anywhere. There's a lot of, uh, let's say, freestanding GI centers, gastroenterology right. centers that do everything, like a general things, project yeah. where you can get a scope and a consultation. Uh, but very few, uh, if any, that are really focused on IBD. There, there's one of my colleagues in Vancouver is is trying to develop something like this, but I don't think it's running yet. Uh, there's a place that I visited in Madrid, which has a very similar concept as this, but it's sort of attached to a hospital. Uh, but I, I have yet to come across, even all my U.S. colleagues, I haven't seen anything like this in the U.S. And I'm not sure why, why, I'm not quite sure why, but. It seems very, it seems like it should be commonplace. You would almost. think. I, I think in the U.S. it might just be because it's hard to make a go of it financially right. in a place where there's so much competition. You know, there's so many doctors in the U.S. that the problem is more that a patient can choose, you know, any doctor and go see them in a week. Whereas here, we don't have enough services. And we don't have enough GIs, at least for the amount of people yeah, with gastroenterology. Yeah, I mean, in our IBD like, program yeah. at Mount Sinai, there's eight of us, and all of us are pretty busy, you know, where I'll have long wait times and long waits for colonoscopies and MRIs and things. So it, it's difficult. And I, I think, too, what people need to understand outside of the medical world is, you know, you the doctors aren't just, they're not just being doctors. Like, you're doing research, and, you know, there's other components of your yeah, right, career. right. right. Um, all working towards an end result of obviously helping your patients, yeah. but and that and that brings up one other part of the clinic that that we haven't talked about yet is that it is going to have research in it, and that's also unique to have a freestanding clinic that is doing research. And so there's two types of research we're going to be doing there. One is clinical trials, which are access to new medications. Right. So there's there's a lot of medication available now for IBD, but there's also a lot of exciting coming medications coming through. Yeah. And to get those to market, you have to offer them in the setting of research trials. And, and for a lot of patients, it's a good option because they the existing treatments haven't worked. And, They're kind of at um, the end. Yeah, yeah. so, so we, we're going to run that sort of a program there where people, it's much more, again, convenient to do it in a central location because you often have to come for study visits and uh, you know frequently come to appointments and downtown is a little challenging for people. So we're going to offer clinical trials and we're going to do some what we call real world research. So we're going to track patient outcomes and see whether the uh, provision of these ancillary health things like the psychology and the pain management and the dietitians are, are leading to a better outcome. And like the a patients better, are, like life. Yeah, really, yeah better for... lifestyle. Are patients more satisfied? Are they doing better, less flares and things like that? So we're going to do all of that type of research at the clinic and and so it isn't going to be just a clinical care center but actually uh we're calling it a hybrid academic community clinic where we'll have pure clinical care but also research going on with i am a huge advocate of research i'm sure our listeners who have listened to our podcast know this you know research for me is the most important thing i think we need to put ourselves into because if we want to have better outcomes if we want to have a better life in the future if, if one day you know dare I say we have a cure for IBD we're not going to get there unless research is done and that means 
we're going to need some biopsies from our colon sometimes, and we're going to need to agree to have our blood work submitted. We're going to need to, you know, say that this is okay. I'm totally for it. Every, every research you want to do, here you go. What do you need me to do? Do you need my poop? Do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need, you know, I'm big on that. Um, I know with, we've had Imagine Spore on and they've talked about the research that they've been doing and, you know, needing healthy people as well to be in this research so that we have something to compare it to. So I'm glad that your clinic is doing research as well. I wouldn't have ex you know, expected anything else from you, Dr. Silverberg, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that does make it unique because uh, we're, yeah. we're a group of, we're going to have a few of our Mount Sinai colleagues there who are experienced in research. So you're not going to be the only GI? There's going to no, be some other GIs well, here? No, that's, uh, I guess, I think the point of getting better access is we're, we're going to have a roster of, of IBD-trained gastroenterologists. And it, it is something good for the listeners to be aware of is that- There's a difference between GI yeah, there's yeah. gastroenterologists and then there's IBD-focused gastroenterologists. And, and all gastroenterologists are trained in IBD care, uh, but it's like a specialist that does uh, a very unique part of, of your of your portfolio. It's like go, you don't go to a general lawyer to to buy your house or right, you, know, right. you have a lawyer that does your real estate and a lawyer that looks after your litigation and your taxes. So in, even within gastroenterology, there's people that focus on liver disease and pancreas disease and uh, and IBS and motility. And so uh, IBD is actually not as common as, as people think in the general community. There's many gastroenterologists that might only see two or three IBD patients in a week because it's wow. just not that prevalent in there, whereas we're seeing 40 or 50 in a day at, at our place. So uh, so you want people that are, especially if you have a little bit, you know, not a straightforward case, you want a specialist that really is focused on IBD and really gets it and understands it. And at our center, we're going to have IBD trained gastroenterologists. People have done fellowships and IBD and have a special interest. They, they really focus on it. And so that way, every day of the week, there will be an IBD specialist on site there. And right. it might not be me every day. It might be somebody else, but that person will be someone that's trained. Oh, you mean you don't have a cot in your office? You're not yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not just... Uh, one, <laughs> one day, maybe, but yeah. You're no, not going to move your family into the yeah. East Wing? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so but I, I think that's one of the keys because if, if as you know, most of my practice is happening on a certain day of the week. You know, I see right. patients yes. say, on Mondays. Yeah. And I can't, uh, I can't free myself to to see a patient that needs to be seen on a Wednesday or Thursday. But if one of my colleagues, let's say who's been on your show, Vivian Wong, mm -hmm. she's going to be joining us there. Uh, she'll be working, let's say, on another day of the week. So if somebody calls me and says I'm having a flare, I'll say, "Well, go to the clinic, and Vivian's there, and she'll see you." And uh, and then that's a colleague of yours, so you yeah, can clearly a have a conversation. And we're going to have really good integrated digital health records, so the whole your whole, you know patients get frustrated. Oh, what do you mean you you didn't get the reports, or you don't know what right. the other doctor said? But we're all going to be on one system and so uh, the whoever's there that day will be able to access your records and know what tests were done and what the plan was at the last visit so it's all coordinated and, and so are after. these just IB like GIs who specialize in IBD coming from Mount Sinai or this no it'll be all over so okay. like when I said a hybrid academic community my my plan is to have a couple from Mount Sinai but also a couple from out in the GTA you know people right. who are general gastroenterologists but do have an interest in IBD out in their practices and there's lots of those around Lots and in. some of them are really interested 
interested in the idea of spending a day a week in an integrated IBD center where they have all these resources with an IBD trained nurse or physician assistant and a dietitian it's and like a, a nutritionist. Super yeah, and, and have access to us. You know, I want to spend a day in the super center. Yeah. What's really right. going? I mean, on. a lot of them. A lot of them call me. You know, in the community, and say I have a patient with this and this. Is what do you suggest we do? And this way, they can actually be a part of our center, and you know, you know, we'll we'll be able to share patients in a way and look after them together. And I think that'll be beneficial for everybody. Well, so. I I fell upon you because my GI. Um, that I had before you, uh, Dr. Elaine Young, she's at, in Scarborough. She, I, I was a very difficult patient in terms of my disease was just, you know, doing what it needed to do to my body and there was nothing together that we could sort out. So she had sent me to you being more of a specialist, being downtown at Mount Sinai, you know, the area of excellence there. And that's how I, that's how I yeah, found so we, you. And, and <laughs> she sent <we>, me. <laughs> so that's what we want to do. We okay. want to be that service both for patients and for gastroenterologists. A lot of gastroenterologists who don't focus on IBD, they they don't have the they don't want to take care of those patients because they don't have the capacity to deal with the complexities and right. uh, they're they're busy with other their other focus and so they're often looking to to send a patient for a second opinion or even to take over care so that's what we like to be that service and for the pa the physicians that do want to keep their patients um, but they just need a one time second opinion like are we doing the right thing any other ideas right. that will see them that one time send a note back to their doctor so the people don't have to leave their physician that they have a good relationship with to come to this clinic. Uh, they can come just for a one-time opinion or to even access the other services that are available and then go back to their regular doctor for ongoing care. And know that it's a trusted facility that it's obviously focusing its attention. You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the thing about clinical trials and experimental research is that you know people are rightly anxious about participating in something like that. And I think if there's trust that you're coming to a reputable center with experienced physicians that understand this field, uh, there's maybe more comfort in agreeing to do research and things like that. And I think the role of clinical trials and understanding IBD is is a big one. It and it's something yeah. that we really need to... I think we may be uncomfortable with it because of our lack of knowledge and understanding it. And I think the more that we can understand it and if facilities like the center you'll be opening where we become more comfortable in that environment, it's a lot easier for us to enroll in things like yeah, this. Yeah, we, we, we could spend a whole episode talking about clinical trials, but but it, in brief, I, I think you know, people's initial perception is that I'm a guinea pig and I don't right. want to be a guinea pig. Heard that we word don't know many what times. this is. Yeah. And, and I, I certainly understand that. I'm not sure I would want to be a guinea pig either. But, right. you know, they, what the idea is, is if you have an experienced research group that does IVD, we know what are the molecules and the compounds that are promising, which ones look to be safe, which ones already have some evidence that they're partial, at least somewhat effective. Um, and so we try to pick the right trials. You know, we want to pick the the studies that it really is a benefit to the patient. There are some research trials that have really no benefit to patients. It's right. a societal benefit. You know, I, I don't know that I would want to participate in those type of trials, although it's still needed. But I understand why people wouldn't want to. Uh, but we're looking for trials where you've tried the Remicade and the Humira and the Intivio right. and you're still not responding right. and we're running out of choices that will work. And there's a new compound that has targets a different pathway that looks safe and has already been through early studies. I think that's the other thing too is that you know, I, 
I don't think people understand when a medication gets to the clinical trial level, it's not like it just dropped off the back of a truck and we're we're just gonna exactly. stick you with yeah. it. People it, it has think, went yeah. through. Yeah, people often think, well, this is the first time anybody's ever <laughs> yeah, received like, this medication. Yeah, it's so. went through a, a series yeah, of tests a, yeah, and regulations. Many, usually and, many, many years before it gets absolutely. to that point. And then and, given the given the funding, right. like we don't, you know, our yeah, policies and government doesn't just throw money yeah. at things. Yeah, you know? When you think of the new therapies that people are quite happy with, like Intivio and Star, they couldn't be made available to patients without that trial process. And that a hundred or five hundred or a thousand patients before you agreed to participate in that trial, so that now you can benefit from right. it, and and hopefully many of those patients benefited. But we we do look at the type of study very carefully. Uh, we try to uh, provide it options that we think are of value. As if I was a patient, what would the value be for this? And, and not every trial would fit every one of your patients absolutely. either. Absolutely, yeah. You, it's hard to find the right fit. And um, But you know what? It's The trial designs are getting much better because the companies and the uh, groups that are developing these molecules are, are understanding that people don't, the old, in, in the old times, it was 50-50 and half the patients would get placebo and half would get the medication and you take it for your three months. And at the end of that, the study was over and you, That's both, it. <laughs> it was over and you didn't yeah. get the treatment anymore. So there's, it's so many developments. So now the ratio of treatment to placebo is much better. So in many trials, 80% of the patients get the drug, 20% right. get the placebo. And, in, and even then if in it's beneficial, it continues. At the three-month mark or after we assess response, if patients aren't responding, they go into what we call open label where they get the medicine for sure. There's no blinding anymore, no placebo. Um, and so everybody who enters will knows that at some point they're going to get them. access to the Sounds medication. Sounds like the FMT trial that Dr. Mayetti was yeah. discussing. Yeah. He said the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're doing an FMT trial where, where there's no sort of placebo. Everybody's yeah, getting everyone's it. Getting and that, it yeah. that's, we've been pretty successful helping them recruit because of that element. So I, I understand why would anybody want to participate in a trial where they only m might get placebo and no right. chance at the new Especially medication. when IBD can be very debilitating. So you enter into a trial yeah. and you could take, you could spend the next three months of your life right. not being given a medication. Yeah. And, and people often think that these decisions about how to do trials are coming from these you know, sort of shady pharmaceutical companies, but usually those those are mandated by regulate regulatory bodies like Health Canada or the yes, FDA. Especially in this They're country. saying, no, yeah. you have to do a placebo-controlled trial. Otherwise, how do we know that this medication is effective? And so, you know, we're relying on people who to take a bit of a risk to to try to show whether a medication is beneficial or not. And it's, but we and the point is though that we are we're going to be, I think approach it from a trusted perspective that we're, people will hopefully rely on us to be, if we're making an offer to say this medication trial is an option for you, that they're trusted, that we're not trying to put them in harm's way, that we're right. giving them a shot at a better life, quality of life ultimately. So I've noticed just even in my 13 years of having IBD, and I would say the last six years of six years, about six, seven years of biologics being something I've educated myself on. I'm on my second biologic now, Humira first, now I'm on Antibio. I've discovered, you know, it seems like the biologics are coming, instead of the one size fits all, like here's a biologic that fits all of autoimmune diseases, it seems like they're getting much more specific to different issues. I know that some of these biologics can help with a multitude of health, but I, you know, Antibio, for example, that I'm on seems to be quite gut selective. Um, so that's, almost 
that's a good feeling too, really. Like it's... I would hope, yeah. I think all the, the some of the medications that are newly available and the ones that are in the pipeline are more, are more sophisticated. Right. They're, I, I think, globally safer for sure. Um, so, that, you know, that's what we hear. People want safer options and they want things. Well, that especially don't. when you hear the word biologic, we get really nervous with the word biologic. Right. And then yeah, it's, it hasn't been as around as long. And what's going to happen in 50 years from right. now? Right. And there's a... And it's, it's, you know, biologics are usually injected or infusion. Right. And we think that this is much more worse than taking a pill right. every right. day or right. pills in our right. cases. Right. But Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, it's not a great word. It's a frightening word, it often it's biologics. A, it's very science-y uh, and that's always terrifying right. to the majority of the public. But, you know, I, I always remind people that most people have had experiences with prednisone that they're not yeah. too happy oh with. Oh my and gosh, that's, prednisone that's, is you know. my, I will never, I, he, Dr. Silver I will never go on that drug ever yeah. again. Uh, Even if I'm dying, yeah. you will yeah, have many, to find many another option. Many say that. So it's a common, you know, but that's the one that and a lot a of little doctors turn a little pill, been Science around for 50 control. years. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we know everything there is to know about it, but uh, people are as, a, as reluctant to take that as the biologics Absolutely. Sometime. So, I mean, that is one of the goals of the, having a clinic like this is to try to give it a multidisciplinary for the patients that don't want the prednisone and they even don't want their biologic, <laughs> but they want it. They often say to me, I can, what else can I do? Can I do something natural? This, is, and, this was me. So. He's talking about me. This is me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go on You're another biologic. I don't want yeah. prednisone anymore. Right. <laughs> so, so if we can at least say, okay, let's give this a shot with a more holistic approach. Let's try a comprehensive nutritional approach and give you some even you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, right. something to, you know, to decrease the stress a notch in your life right. and how you cope with things. You know, I think that can help some people. I, you know, I don't know what percentage that is. It's certainly not going to help everybody, but no. I have patients, especially with colitis, that, you know, if they get their life in order, manage their stress, have a good, healthy lifestyle, eat well, their, symptoms their, their colitis will, yeah. will settle, you know, and yeah. they don't need medication. So, you know, we're not just about providing a prescription for a medication. I want to be, you know, what people need is what we'll try to provide and, and offer to give people all the choices that they're looking for. So with all these trials coming in and the medications that are coming down the pipeline and stuff like that, do you see an increase in, in the understanding of maybe causes of IBD? Like, yeah, I think we're getting, we getting there. Closer? So, you know, my other hat that keeps me busy is my research lab at Mount Sinai, where we're we're really focusing on trying to figure out why people get IBD. Right. And why, and like, think, it's so high in Canada? Yeah, it's high it's in happening Canada. happening here. <laughs> and, but um, I, I do think there's, we're making progress. There's a lot of exciting research around uh, the microbiome. And I, I feel that that's where we're going to make a real breakthrough in, in the, the next I just, five I, or 10 I picture years. The, the, the Venn diagram that you're used to seeing, like right. it's the genetic, the microbiome, yeah. the environment. Yeah. Like. So I, I I was in one circle for many years in the genetics side. I'd spent the first 10 years of my career doing genetics and research. And then you jump ship. And, uh, yeah, sort of jump ship. I mean, it was uh, more of a slip across the water <laughs> to the next ship than jumping it. But it, it, it because the technology was actually very similar genetics is sequencing dna and how we're studying the microbiome well, the environment is actually sequencing bacterial dna right. so i actually could translate what we knew our expertise in genetics to the environmental microbiome relatively easy uh, we brought in people to our group who have a real understanding of food and nutrition and, and gut bacteria so that we could move in that direction and our newer our most recent grants have focused on the role of diet and nutrition and how it might 
help or worsen IBD depending on what you eat and what bacteria are there. So well, I'm definitely hearing a lot about the microbiome. It's become I, I there was a commercial. I don't remember. I think it was a yogurt or a, or a multivitamin <laughs> or something. But it actually spoke. It said the word microbiome, and it showed all these. It was quite comical, actually. These little <laughs> colorful balls. It was almost looked like a kid's play right. ball set, but that was what was in the body. And this is your microbiome, and it's made up of millions yeah. and billions <laughs> of all these. I was like, wow, they said a big science word on a 30 second right. commercial. This is amazing. Yeah, I think, I think uh, the general population, a lot of them will have heard the word microbiome. Yeah, by well, when now, they hear and... microbiome too, I feel like people, oh, you mean like probiotics? They're like, yeah, no, right. Not exactly. So that's <laughs> often, that's often <laughs> the, the, the reach is probiotics. Yeah, I'm going to get my activia. Uh, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot of misconceptions around that. But, you know, what's what's nice is that we're actually getting more scientific about it so that it doesn't seem as Well, artsy, I think the FMT artsy. trials focus on microbiome as well, like the bacteria yeah, that's exactly. living. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're trying to really understand when we say you should eat this or you should take this product or you should get a fecal transplant. We're now not just doing it in a haphazard random way. We're actually measuring your microbiome composition before our intervention and after so we could see what the changes are. Which is not an easy job because it's, the microbiome really has a lot of... Uh, very complicated and some people feel it's too complicated to to make progress, but you know you never want to be that pessimistic. I think we will make a lot of progress, and, right. and the fecal transplant's a great example of. Well, you had you know, suggested to, it, like it was. I heard it from you. Yeah, no, I, yeah. we the, the trial from Dr. Moyetti at McMaster in Hamilton is is a great trial, and it actually it's helped a lot of my patients. Shocking. I've heard. I've, I've heard, been a little yes. surprised myself, and pleasantly <laughs> surprised at how well it's worked. Um, but I think it's it's a step on the journey, right? What that's telling Absolutely. us is that if you change around the bacterial composition in your gut, you can potentially improve outcomes. But now we have to understand why, what is changing? You know, is the, it- The gut in the first place. It's not place. just, yeah, because the donor stool for that is, is a random healthy person. But it's it would stand to reason that you can't just take any random healthy person out there and use their fecal matter as a donor no, source and uh, like don't go home and take your brother's poop and right like, <laughs> right it's that's not going to be the way it's going to be done you know we're going to have to say okay there are certain types of bacteria that that someone with colitis has that they shouldn't or they're deficient in something that they need more of and we're going to go find either the right donor or synthesize synthetically synthesize a stool composition that is has the bacteria that needs to be put back into replenish what's missing to get that person to improve. And I think that's what we're going to get to that level of sophistication, I'm pretty sure, where you'll if get we, a prescription. If we can narrow down specifically in the microbiome what's going on, it makes it us a lot easier to go even further backwards and find out how did it get like this in the first place. Yeah, so there was just a very interesting study published from a group in Europe that looked at actually showing that Patient, uh, relatives of patients with uh, IBD who are following for years a more Mediterranean type diet were less likely to develop Crohn's disease than people following a standard kind of Western diet. Now, these are epidemiologic right, studies, right. but you know that's the whole goal of the GEM project. I was going to say, the yeah, GEM project is doing is, that. You, yeah, you're so. following the healthy, the, the relatives. Right. And people have developed IBD while being studied. So yes. they have the before yeah, when exactly. they were, quote, and healthy. There's a lot of exciting data coming from that study that's starting to come out to understand what's changing in the bacteria and maybe what food 
uh, approaches or what eating patterns did people have who got the disease and those who didn't. And we're doing big things here in Canada, especially uh, in Canada Toronto. is an amazing yeah. place for yeah. IBD research. I mean, it's amazing place to have IBD. <laughs> it's an amazing place for IBD yeah. research. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think we we could do better on our clinical services, which is why I'm trying to improve that. But I think on research level, we have world class scientists and researchers here, and I think we're punching way above our weight in, in the research approaches. To well, IBD. like you as an individual as well, like you, you, my last call, my last flexible segmentoscopy with you, we had a doctor from Chile there. Yeah, so, and yeah, so we, we bring people from all over the world to yeah. train with us and to do Which is great. Come on in, guys. Yeah. Welcome to Toronto. This is my colon. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting for us. And actually, uh, you say that, it relates to what we were just talking about, is that we're getting more fellows applying to us from countries where you would never have expected. When I started our fellowship, our, our fellows came from Australia and England and Israel. Well, I think Israel, if I had a doctor, uh, Israel, I was going to say, I had a doctor yeah, from so Israel. so those are places yeah. where IBD's been right there. Western, Korea, there was a young lady, yeah, a young so, doctor yeah, fellow. So, yeah. so now we're getting applicants from Mexico and Chile and Argentina and, and Asia, where in places where China, where the, there didn't used to be IVD, but now they're seeing it and they need to get trained to get up to speed right. on it. And so it's exciting that they're coming here. It's also, it's sad as well, because there's, that means that IVD is on the rise in yes, areas where yeah. it wasn't before. Right. Um, but at least that initiative is there yeah, to exactly. support people. Well, we want to train them so that they can take better care of patients in those parts of the world, but also you know, we, we develop these research connections with them. So they go right. back to those countries, we can keep in touch. And, you know, it's a real opportunity because you're seeing the the onset of an outbreak almost. It'd be interesting and, to see what the microbiome of people look like in a country that where yeah, you have exactly, a different diet than exactly. here in Canada. So that those type of studies are being done now in China and in, in, in South I, America. I was at a presentation so. somewhere. I, I thought they said in, I think it was China or Japan, something about the rise in IBD and it's almost following the pattern that Canada, yeah, yeah. almost exactly. Yeah, like we're seeing yeah. UC first and then Crohn's yeah. comes in after that. And yeah. China seems to be a really good example in a lot of the South American countries, but you know, China, it's been, it's, it seems more clear because 30 or 40 years ago, it was a very basic, you know, vegetable, rice, little meat sort of diet. Right. And fish, now, so yeah, probably fish more. And now you're seeing not so much that it's just meat, but also that it's uh, processed and fast food. The foods, North American way, right? So you go to a restaurant, <laughs> you get a load of sugar in your in your pop, right. and you get a ton of sugar in your processed desserts, and you know maybe the 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 fried foods and the simple carbs that are coming with your French the fries and your hash rice, browns. Yeah. You know, the, it, I think it's that type of thing that's leading to some of the increase that you're seeing or, you know, in obesity and heart disease and in immune diseases like IBD as well. So it does seem to track, but we don't know the very specific aspects of it yet. So before you go, is there anything else you want to talk about, about your center? It's not titty, it's tidy. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact um, that your daughter said well, that is hilarious. We're, <laughs> we're, we're opening in the spring, uh, so it, it'll probably be a bit of a gradual ramp up. So we might not have all the services we talked about ready to roll No, I don't think it's going to be one. like, open the door and here we are. Yeah, like. yeah. It's going to have to build a little bit and, uh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a challenge. There's no given that it'll work just because in it, of the challenges of Canadian healthcare, where it's, right. uh, you know, you can't do endoscopy or colonoscopies in a clinic because of, there's no funding for it. So to do that and well, that to make it available, the equipment's like, expensive, the nursing costs, the drug costs. 
uh, and and the, where that's being done in outside centers being sort of funded out of physicians' pockets, out of their professional fees, it's it's expensive to run, and um, you know, so those there's challenges around running a healthcare center in Canada without adequate funding. So and providing services like psychosocial care and pain management okay. and dietitians for people that can't afford to just pay for it is a challenge. But uh, we're we're up to we've been working on this model. I've been thinking about this for many years, and I'm hoping that I've uh, found uh, a formula that will work and provide a real unique and opportunity for patients and physicians uh, that are related to IBD in Toronto and the well, greater Well, I've been area. following the Twitter account with the the, the, <laughs> the the Toronto Immune and Digestive Health Institute Twitter account, and I've been seeing like pictures being posted of like, you're. It, everything's being torn down yeah, and, you yeah, know, new drywall's new, going up yeah, and the electrical's going in. Construction's starting. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's expensive to build a new <laughs> center. I mean, I, you know, and I'm learning business for the first time in my career because I've been focused on research and well, clinical Well, Mount care, Sinai's so. been going through a little bit of a... Yeah, we're doing some construction at Mount Sinai too. But yeah, Your I, whole I life is just drywall. My, my goal is to have, you know, we'll have our, our really, you know, high-end center at, uh, at Lawrence and Allen you know, for the outpatient care and really to make it uh, fill all these gaps that we've talked about. And it, uh, Mount Sinai will still be there for us. I'll still right. be there as well. And Mount Sinai will be there for the patients that need surgery and that need an emergency department, have an acute issue. Uh, so I'm hoping it'll it'll improve the care and the approaches in both places. Well, I feel uh, too, as, as it becomes more popular and almost like a supply and demand, as you have more patients, you know, hopefully more GIs will join exactly. and be a part of this community. Yeah. And, and I'd like it to be a prototype for the country. You know, there's, there's well, room yeah, there's for centers like more, this like, across the country and put it in different Yeah, like at West, Alberta, BC, I know a lot of their universities yeah, are really involved exactly. with research and stuff. Yeah, no, there's, a lot, there's great centers across Canada and, and uh, they all have similar problems that we do with access and, and outpatient care in a hospital and and I think I'm hoping that my I talk to my colleagues a lot about this and they're following what I'm doing and I'm not keeping anything a secret it's all out there and I'm I always tell them that you want to come and you want to come you want to <laughs> you, you, you want me to tell you the model I'm like it's all out there I want it to be something that's a resource for everybody yeah so. the last time I was at your office uh I was the the form was there to sign. You know, this is what's happening, and uh, to check off all of the things that you want. I wanted to be you learn more about like yeah. when this. I was like check 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 everything. Here's my name. I'll be here. My well, signature. You know, and I have to take uh, relate to you. that. To be honest with you, I don't think this would have happened without the push from my patients. Um, oh, you mean so a few all of times, our nagging? Well, has you been know, I, it, not not so much that, but even when I said when patients tell me what their issues are, and I say like I don't know how to fix this, and then I started to develop this concept and there were many times along this journey which started about three years ago where I was going to give up it's too hard it's too much work it's too expensive and I have patients say don't give up this is too important this is going to be useful yeah. you got to do this well, and that's what I really pushed you. me over the edge to do <laughs> I, well now it, so. you have no choice now, you're <laughs> yeah, now, like, now I'm in <laughs> we know where you are you're yeah, like we yeah, know what yeah. your hours when yeah. you work we'll just show yeah. up um but all the patients we've had regardless of what they come on Guts and Glory to talk about, all the patients we've had say the same thing. They say that they don't feel like they're being treated in like a, a way whole, that's for uh, holistic yeah. and long-term. A hundred percent. Like this it's is, very much, here's yeah. a prescription, right. as you go. Your next appointment is yeah, blah, blah, blah. There's blah. so much pressure in our system for physicians. We can't spend 
you know, enough time to develop it. So, and I can't fix that because that's a systematic healthcare issue. But what I can do is fill in the gaps with other people, a nurse, a psychologist, a social worker that will spend another hour with you if you need it to really go through those right. things that we talked about. And they'll be trained by me. So I know that they're giving you the right information. That's why you get that time. This is very really, exciting. Yeah. As a patient, I'm sure it's very exciting for you because this is like, the, you're, this is what you are birthing this and this is happening, you <laughs> yeah, know? Exactly. But like, yeah. it's exciting extremely it's it's actually it's very comforting yeah it's a it's a weight off of our shoulders that I don't think we knew was there like it's like as soon as somebody like when you when I discovered about when you told me about your center in the first place I was like well it was a couple years ago I was like is it opening now like when is this occurring like this cannot happen fast enough so So it is quite comforting and it's I really do hope that this is something that becomes very successful and then because becomes commonplace Everywhere. Yeah, I hope so too. And I, I encourage patients who are listening to this and anybody who hears about it to to give us the feedback, you know, like let us know what else do you either think through needed? Twitter, through the email, through our website, you know, what what's missing, what are we doing well, what are we not doing well? Because again, I developed this from feedback from patients and I want it to be a continuous process of improving and doing the things that patients want. And I'll hear from people if the people that aren't aren't uh, that we're working with are not providing the care you want. They're not serving you what, right. They're not you treating you well. That's what I, that really bothers me. I mean, when you come in for your scope or your procedure and you're being treated by a nasty nurse or somebody who doesn't, right. an, an admin assistant who doesn't have the patience to <laughs> right. deal with you, I want to fix that. There's no excuse for that. We need to be nicer to our patients. Well, and it's, treat it's, them even, it's hard, especially now. Granted, I think some patients come in as well, well having woken up on the wrong side of the bed, and we <laughs> you're, can make you're an excuse. Yeah, entitled. well, yeah, we can make an excuse that like this is what's happening to us right now. But we also have to remember that you're all human as well, and the amount of people that you see on a daily basis far exceeds probably what you should be seeing on a daily basis, especially with such intense issues that we come with. It can be tough sometimes. But I'm very excited for this center. I feel like I'm just going to be out there waiting. Are you going to do like a ribbon cutting or something? <laughs> yeah, we'll probably can you have a do little that? opening. That uh, would be fun. Party okay, I'll bring the Tim's. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Starbucks. I feel like doctors drink Starbucks. Maybe I some Starbucks. fruit and veggie platters. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, but raw fruit and vegetables can be difficult sometimes. <laughs> Um, so that's amazing. Dr. Silverberg, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Um, Thanks for having me. I was going to say, it seems, it feels different when I come to your office because, but it's not, I feel like when I come to your office and I've said to patients, go with your questions. Last time I saw you in your office, I came with a paper of questions and I asked you a bunch of (laughs) questions about. So, uh, it's very natural to be here with you talking about these things. I appreciate you giving up your time on Saturday. Um, and I think you deserve a lot of credit too for taking time out of your life to raise awareness. I know you've done it in many platforms and stages, and you're not shy to talk about no, IBD. And that's no, I'm important. definitely it's not. It's really important. As we mentioned before like the episode started, I think it'd be good to get somebody in recording my um, my next colonoscopy. I think that'd be great. That'd be a lot of fun. Maybe more of a we'll flexible sigmoidoscopy because then I can stay awake <laughs> and converse about what's there really happening. Okay, we'll do it. So when it comes to educating, just before we go, when it comes to educating yeah. people with IBD, I think having a video of a flexible sigmoidoscopy would help. But what else do you think you know we could be doing to help in the education? Yeah, trend? I think I think we we need good objective information to to get out there. And I, I don't know whether it's on through Crohn's and Colitis Canada, right. through or through yourself and through your type of podcasts. I think are doing a good job. It's really just having 
reputable sources. And well, that, I think social media can be a wonderful thing and an awful thing yeah, agree, all at the agree. same time. Yeah, I don't think you want too much of your education from social media unless you know the reputable people. So there are a lot of good IBD docs and, and, and healthcare and professionals and, on Twitter, yeah. actually. I surprisingly good. So if you focus on the right people and the right uh, locations on the internet, you can get good information. But there's a lot of uh, misrepresentation out there too. So it's research, and I, I've encouraged Crohn's and Colitis Canada, at least for Canada, to to provide that source for reputable information and reputable places to go for your care. Absolutely. So there, I think there, it's not quite where it should be, but it's getting there. So we'll keep pushing them. So making sure that you the you vet the sources that you're listening to before yeah. you start taking advice. Um, I've discovered, you know, with Guts and Glory, that the Twitter universe is actually quite fantastic. I had no idea about, well, I knew about Twitter, but I didn't, I didn't know I what it was. I think the patient advocacy is phenomenal. Yes, the number of patients huge. that are really so, good at advocacy and, and giving good guidance, I think is amazing. And there's a lot of doctors on Twitter. There are. There's in in IBD, there's a lot. You just add one a... doctor and then you get suggestions <laughs> of all the other ones and you're like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's an, I've learned a lot actually. Well, there's a lot of sharing of and... re, like, information, yeah. articles, yeah. and studies yeah. that you know can be trusted, and there's, yeah. it's- Yeah, not- and I think in the IBD space on Twitter, it's been actually remarkably civil and and, and constructive, but I would be caution on the on the nutrition and diet side. Just, it's a little ugly out well, there. Well, I think right? social media, like- <laughs> There's I, a lot I, of- uh, You know, people are, I feel like people are always a little bit more open to speaking to somebody who may not have you know, they're okay to listen to, you know, aunt at Thanksgiving dinner that you should try this <laughs> meal and they're quick to change, but they want to make sure they have a doctor when it comes to medication right. and food should be treated. You yeah. got to be But even the professional, careful. I've seen the, the wars between the vegans and the carnivores <laughs> and the ketos. And then, uh, you oh, know, the ketos. Oh the my ketos goodness. Get wow, intense. there's yeah. some religious people. And that, the FODMAPs. Yeah, like yeah, it's a little, little aggressive sometimes, but, you know, at least you learn. You have to take all the different opinions with a grain of salt. Uh, but get education. And I, I think the most important thing is probably make sure you're happy with your physician, that you feel that they're giving you uh, the answers you're looking for, that they're, they have some you know, knowledge in IBD that's specialized. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And if or you're not getting the answers or for a second opinion, most doctors are really good. I send people for second opinions. I mean, it's it's important. And if, if your doctor is aggravated that you're asking for a second opinion, it's, they're probably not the right physician for you. Right. It's a bad sign then. It's a bad sign. Every physician should be open to to getting a colleague to help them out if they're not sure, or even just for their patient's peace of mind to know that their approach is okay. So on Twitter, um, it's Toronto Immune and Digestive Health Institute. Is there yeah. any other? Uh, we have a website. Okay. Uh, it's early days, but www.tidyti.ca. <laughs> um, still in construction, but gradually we'll add educational yeah. content and information about the opening of the clinic and the staff that are working there. So it'll grow. Uh, Twitter right now is going to be my approach to to giving people updates. But uh, but well, I'll, if you follow, yeah. if our listeners follow us on Twitter as well, so we're Guts and Glory G T S N G L R Y. Some of the vowels are missing. Um, and on Facebook, Guts and Glory, we're starting our Instagram. Same Guts and Glory. 
we're going to share all of this about your episode and we'll be posting your website. Um, I'm going to be there for the cutting of the ribbon. I awesome. will be. There will be a photo of me cutting the ribbon. <laughs> I will be taking the day off work if it's during the week. I know this is happening. I'm going to pretend I'm cutting the ribbon. Um, so all of this will be shared. I, I think Twitter, as you said, it's a really good community to get onto um, and to look. So start following. Um, be be there for the opening. And as Dr. Silverberg mentioned, if you're if there's something that you think is there's a hole, there's a gap, we have to speak up. You Absolutely. Know? You wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for the patients yeah. speaking up. Yeah. Um, continue to share your experiences if you're comfortable. If not, you know, sh- just share things about IBD because the more we talk about it, the more normalcy that will be attached to it. And then we might be having dinner conversations, not just about our triple bypass, but about right. other things That's as well. That's the goal. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Silverberg. You're the best. Thank you. Strength and positive thoughts, everyone. Thanks for listening to Guts and Glory. This podcast is produced by Bang Albino, Inc.